0: Well, if you have your Bibles, we are going to continue in the Gospel of Matthew. So Matthew chapter 24, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Matthew 24, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14. This is, as we come into Matthew's gospel, this is the, the final discourse. And so throughout Matthew's gospel, it's been kind been of this back and forth between a, a discourse or a section, a large section of teaching, and then, then kind of narrative of, of healings and miracles. And, um, and so there's kind of been back and forth. And so this is the final discourse. Uh, it takes place on the Mount of Olives and is often known as the Olivet Discourse. This is, regardless of what commentary or biblical scholar you read, this is often described as the most difficult to understand passage in all of the New Testament. Um, and so here we go. This is where we are. Um, the plan is, I'm going to read verses 1 through 14, um, and then, then we'll look at that one. So let, let me read the passage, um, just verses 1 through 14 of chapter 24, and then I'll pray again for us, and then we will work through Uh, So chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, here's what Jesus says. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he, that is Jesus, answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Let's pray before we look at these these verses together. Father, we acknowledge this is your word given to us for our correction and training and reproof and all that we need. And so we ask that you would make this word profitable to us, your people. We're dependent on not only your word, but your spirit to apply and open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wondrous things written here in your word. So spirit, would you do that among us this morning? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, as we, as Joey puts up the slide, I don't want you to be alarmed. Okay, The next slide is going to have an outline on it, and so this outline is not all that we're going to cover today, Okay, so, so don't be alarmed. This is, so what I've done, because chapter 24 and 25 are one big discourse, I've gone through and I've, I've outlined it in six sections, Okay, and so these six sections are kind of our, our map for the next five weeks, Okay, so, so don't be alarmed. So Joe, if you could put up the six points, here are the six points points as we work through in the coming weeks, chapters 24 and 25. Okay, you don't have to write all of them down this morning. You can if you're a faster writer, but all you need this morning really are one and two. Okay, so we're going to work through those first two, but this is just, this is the big picture, and if it's not beneficial for you, it was beneficial for me in knowing how to organize this whole discourse. Okay, So, so that's the big picture, um, and, and this morning we're going to look at just verses 1 through 14, which is point 1 and point 2. So point 1, we're going to see the, a prediction and a question. They're kind of the setting. And then in verses 4 through 14, we'll see Jesus describe the, the beginning of birth pains. Those are his words, not mine, as he describes what, what's going to happen before the end. Okay, so, so let's, let's move here through these, just these first two as, as, we, as we cover verses 1 through 14. So first, point one, a prediction and a question, verse 1 through 3. And so as we, as we come into this section, into chapter 24, it's important to recognize the context of Matthew's gospel. So throughout this gospel, especially these recent chapters, we've gone to great lengths to show rising tension, Tension has been rising between Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious leaders, they've refused to listen to Jesus. They've refused to acknowledge the identity of Jesus, the self-proclaimed identity of Jesus. And they've, they've continued to lead people astray, away from Jesus. And so these religious leaders have failed to fulfill their God-given purpose as experts in the law. We've seen that, and we've seen the tension rising. And so, a kind of a foreshadowing, if you don't know, these men are going to be heavily responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus in the coming weeks. Okay, so, so last week we saw chapter 23, all of the chapter was an indictment against the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, from Jesus to them. He condemned them. He held back no punches. Right? That, that was all the woes of chapter 23. And one thing he said in 23 that that's going to affect How we understand what he says in 24, we didn't spend much time on it last week, but, but just look up in your Bible at the end of chapter 23 at verse 38. So here's this, he's weeping over Jerusalem, but notice what he says in verse 38. He says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. He's talking to Jerusalem, he's talking to the religious leaders, And in the context of chapter 23, this indictment is powerful because this indictment is an acknowledgement of the temple not being what it once was, or or even an acknowledgement of the temple not being what it was meant to be. Jesus says, when he says, your house is empty, he's declaring to the scribes and the Pharisees that the temple in Jerusalem that was built for the worship of God Right Which is, by the way, where most of this conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders has been, take, has been happening. It's no longer serving its purpose. Jesus says, "Look at your house." When it was built, it was not their house. It was the Lord's house. And His glory filled it. And he says, "Your house, Jerusalem. It's desolate. It's empty. The Lord has left the building," is what Jesus says in verse 38. And that is an enormous indictment because here is Jesus, the very son of God, talking about the temple that had been built, first by Solomon, then destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians as an, as an act of judgment, a sign of judgment. Right? They were sent into exile. Right? The temple was destroyed, but then it was rebuilt. Remember the book of Ezra and King Cyrus commissions the rebuilding of the temple. And it was this second temple that is standing there. It's been elaborated by, by King Herod, but this was the temple that, had, that has, it had its history all the way back beginning with Ezra and then even Solomon before that. And so Jesus is, is condemning Jew, Judaism and the Jewish religious leaders, and he's saying that the, the house is desolate. And so this temple which stood as a pillar and a foundation of the Jewish people, of God's people, it's, it's empty, And so that's the background. That's how he ends chapter 23, which makes sense, helps us make sense of what's to come in chapter 24. So recognizing that that background, look at verse 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and he was going away. From the temple when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So Jesus and his disciples, they, they've had all these interactions in the temple, in its courts, and this is his final departure. And this is full of meaning. But he's cleansed the temple, he's debated its leaders in the court, he's declared it's empty, and now he's abandoning the temple, never to return to it. And so they leave the temple, they're going back to probably to Bethany, to, to Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house, and to get there, they, they have to go down and over. Over the Mount of Olives to get back to Bethany. And so as they're leaving, they're on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples point out to Jesus all of the buildings of the temple. They have a great vantage point. In fact, you can Google the Temple Mount from Mount Olive, Mount Olivet, and it shows you the temple, and it's the whole complex, the Temple Mount. And so they're looking at it, and the disciples, as they're leaving say, "Hey, look at that." They're concerned with the disciples see these beautiful stones, the wonderful buildings, this this entire complex, and they just they draw the attention of Jesus to it. And this was from a a purely architectural perspective, these are appropriate. This is a beautiful complex with beautiful stones. In fact, the the renovations and the expansion of King Herod was, was marvelous. So it truly was a wonder to behold. In fact, the Romans referred to this complex, this temple mount, as one of the most beautiful structures in the entire ancient world. That's how the Romans understood and acknowledged this. I mean, one, one author describes the walls were made of huge stones, some up to 40 feet long, and the top was adorned by pure white marble with gold plates on the front, so that numerous people were almost blinded when the sun shone on this temple. It was a glorious sight. And so the disciples just draw the attention to this. So in verse 2, now, right, they say, look, look at the temple. In verse 1, they point out the buildings, but verse 2, Jesus wants to make sure they don't miss the point that he's, that he's been making this entire time that they've been in the temple and its courts. He refused them to, to remain oblivious to the reality of what's going on. He answered them, You see all these, stones, don't you? Don't, don't you see what you're talking about? That the temples or the stones in the temple. And he says, Truly I say to you, they will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let me read that again. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. There's nothing unclear about what Jesus is declaring here on the temple mount. There's no question as to what he's saying will, will happen. The, the temple, the one that they're looking at from the Mount of Olives, they're looking at a temple standing there in Jerusalem. It's, it's probably Tuesday evening of Passion Week. And he's saying, This temple is going to be destroyed. It, it, it's literally going to be flattened. In fact, if you go in the, in the prophet Haggai, he talks about the rebuilding of the temple as uh, one stone upon another. Here, it's the reverse. It's one stone removed from another. So it's the the destruction, the deconstruction of the temple. And so Jesus is saying, that temple that that you're marveling at, it's it's worthless. It's going to be destroyed. I mean, that's clear within the immediate context, within the larger context of Matthew's gospel, and in the context of Jesus coming to earth and saying, I am the temple. Right? The temple that had functioned in the life of Israel was obsolete in the coming of Jesus. That's clear. It's going to be destroyed, Jesus said. I've come to make things right. I'm the Messiah. And there's a transition taking place between the earthly temple and my body, which is the temple, the fulfillment of all every temple ever was pointing to. In fact, I don't think there's any other way to rightly understand what's going on in chapter 24. And in fact, this past week, I was gathering with a few other pastors, and one of them had just been to the Holy Land. He had just been to Israel, and we're sitting, and one of the pastors was asking, you know, what do you think about Israel? Um, And I said, well, I'm actually, I'm preaching about the Olivet Discourse. Do you know? And he's like, oh, let me tell you about the Temple Mount. And so he said his group actually went on the Mount of Olives, and and in fact, he sent me a video, and I I thought maybe I could get it, but it's going to be too complicated. But he sent a video, and you look across from the Mount of Olives— over, there's, there's a little valley, and you see the Temple Mount. Some of you, if you've been to the Holy Land, you, you, you know what I'm about to say. But he stood on the Mount of Olives and, and looked at the same thing that Jesus and his disciples are, are looking at. But do you know, in, in 2023, as you look across onto the Temple Mount, do you know what's on top of the Temple Mount right now? Do you know what occupies the place where the Temple once stood? It's called the Dome of the Rock, and, and it's an Islamic mosque. It's a place where Muslims can, can make a pilgrimage to, and it's got this shiny gold dome on top. I mean, just think about that. As I'm sitting there, listening to him describe what he's seen, I thought, there's no better illustration or evidence of what Jesus is predicting here. Do you think that house is desolate? It is empty. It, it, it's it's, a, it's a, a shrine to a pagan religion. It is empty. The place where God's people once gathered to worship is now desolate. And it means, we'll say more about this next week, but as chapter 24 continues, as he, specifically verses 15 through 28, everything he's talking about is gonna be fulfilled in the destruction of the temple. The temple in Israel was destroyed in AD 70. We'll say a lot more about this next week. But but this, this passage, the Olivet Discourse, has nothing to do with a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem during a so-called seven-year tribulation. That's just not there. It's not going to happen. The idea that a temple in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt during a tribulation period, though held by many godly people, right? It's crazy. It misses the point of the temple. It misses the point that Jesus clearly makes when he identifies his own body as the new temple. You're going to destroy this temple, and in three days, it's going to be raised. He redefines the function of the temple, and he fulfills it. There's no other temple coming. It came, and it was crucified, and it was raised. And now the meeting point between God and his people is in Jesus. There's no other temple coming, and we'll see that. If if you don't like what I'm saying, don't come back next week, because that's what it's going to be about. The temple was destroyed. Well, actually, I changed that. If you don't like what I'm saying, please come back next week this prediction from Jesus was a big deal, which is why, notice in verse 3, they make their way from the temple mount, right? And they're on the Mount of Olives now, so now they're seeing this view. In verse 3, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. They've just heard this prediction, so they have to know, what are you talking about? So they say, tell us, teacher, Jesus, Messiah, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? What will be the sign of the end of the age? When is this going to happen? And these questions then set the stage for all that comes in chapter 24 and 25. And so the way you understand the Olivet Discourse depends on how you understand what the disciples are asking. And it's important to know that, that as the disciples are asking this question, they don't have in their mind clear distinctions between any of what they're asking. These events, so, so they, hear him t- they hear him talk about the destruction of the temple, and, and, and they know that with the destruction of the temple, on the timeline somehow there's going to be the, the, the Messiah's coming, the end of the age is coming, and it's all going to happen. And Jesus, you say the temple is going to be destroyed. We know it's all going to happen, so just, just fill it out for us. Right? That's their question. Their, their mind does not have all of these timelines separated out. They just know it's all going to happen, so just, just tell us. What, what is going to be the sign? What's going to happen? When is this going to happen? Jesus. In verse 3, when they ask the question, almost certainly in their minds, the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Lord, and the end of the age are all roughly at the same time. It's not parsed out in their mind. When they ask the question, they, they have no idea how it's parsed out. They just know it's all going to happen and they think it's going to happen at once, which means when they hear the temple is going to be destroyed, their assumption is that that event, that the, these things are going to mark the beginning of the end. The great end time event, or end times events, the culmination of all things in their mind would, would involve the destruction of the temple, the coming of the Son of Man, and the end of the age. So like I said, their minds are somewhat jumbled in regards to the specific, but they're convinced this is gonna happen. We know you're the Messiah, and we know you've just predicted the, the fall of the temple, so we know it's soon, it's coming. So tell us when. When are these things gonna be? Right, so, so that's their question, And Jesus is going to answer the question. He's not going to leave them in the dark, but his answer isn't going to be as straightforward as we might prefer or as some pretend that it is. It's not a straightforward answer. I mean, just just read 24 and 25 in in the Olivet Discourse. It's not straightforward. But instead, running throughout this entire discourse is a discussion of, of two main themes, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age. And these themes are going to run throughout this entire discourse. And these two themes sometimes... As Jesus is talking, he's referring to the coming judgment on Jerusalem in the temple. Some of what he says is clear to that. We'll see that next week. But sometimes what he's saying refers to a judgment at the end of the age and not the destruction of the temple. And then sometimes some of what he says could be equally applied to both the destruction of the temple and the judgment at the end of time. Right? And so, so it's, it's not cut and dry. In fact, as we work through these, these chapters in the coming weeks, we're going to see just that. There are clear predictions and references to the literal temple in Jerusalem being destroyed as well as clear predictions and references to the coming of the Son of Man at the end of time, the the final events. And sometimes Jesus is talking about one, sometimes the other, and sometimes he's talking about both. In fact, one one pastor friend illustrated it this way. I think this will be be helpful. These two themes are running throughout this entire discourse like Christmas lights that you pull out of the bin when you're getting ready to decorate for Christmas. If you're like me, every year you pull out the Christmas lights, you think to yourself, Okay, this is the year I'm finally going to put them away orderly when I'm done with them. right? Because you open the bin and you start pulling and you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know where one ends and one begins. I don't know where this strand, I don't know where the plug is. I, and it's just, it's a jumble. And so you, you, you have a bin with, with knots and tangles and, and it's just confusing. And it takes work to untangle them, lots of work sometimes. And, and that's kind of how these two themes are going to run throughout the Olivet Discourse. The, the, the destruction of the temple and the end of the age, right? These are the two themes that, that sometimes are so intertwined you can't tell one from the other. And again, this is, this is gonna work itself out in the coming weeks. But my aim is to show you how these two themes fit together in the way Jesus answers this question, in the way Jesus teaches on the Mount of Olives. And so this week, as we work through 4 through 14, what we just read, we're gonna see what Jesus describes are signs. They're signs. They're birth pains, but they're the beginning of birth pains. They're not signs of the end. They're signs of the beginning of birth pains. And because they are just the beginning of birth pains, these are not signs that the end is immediate. They're not signs that, that, okay, get ready, because when these happen, it's definitely coming. No, this is, what he describes here, are signs that are going to run from the the time between his first and second coming. That's what these birth pains are going to characterize, the the experience of his followers, his immediate disciples, but also all who come after them between the first and second coming. And so while the disciples are asking specifically about the temple, before he begins addressing that topic, which he will do, he says there's going to be things happening continuously, not just between now and the the temple being destroyed, but, but things that will mark this entire period until the end of the age. From the time of my departure and the time of my return, there's going to be these signs that mark the experience of my people. And so he's not going to focus on the destruction of the temple. That's that's the the next week's passage. The focus is on what the disciples, who are going to find themselves between the first and second coming, which is actually the place we find ourselves, and the focus is on how followers of Jesus, what they can expect and how they can be faithful between the times. I mean, in, in, this, in this description of these signs, there's going to be a delay. The end of the age is going to be delayed because these signs take time to develop. And so the disciples are incorrect in assuming the destruction of the temple is going to bring with it the immediate end of all things. There's going to be more time between it than they recognized. The destruction of the temple is actually going to be a major sign. It's going to be the height of the birth pains. It's a huge sign, but there's going to be a period of waiting, which will include what Jesus says as, as many birth pains. And so one thing, just, just hear this, one thing that Jesus makes explicit is that the birth pains mentioned in verses 4-14 through 14 are not signs of the end. They're not. I mean, he says as much. But instead, they're, they're things that disciples and those who come after disciples will have to endure. This is not a description of a tribulation period that has no relevance for the original disciples or for us. Right? It, it has relevance for all who, who live between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus, In fact, just just look down at verse 6 of chapter 24, Jesus says plainly in verse 6, the end of it, "See see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. These signs are not signs of the end, which means that wars and rumors of wars that nation rising against nation, that famines and earthquakes, that false prophets, that many being led astray, that the love of many growing cold, these are not signs that are meant to stipulate just how near to the end we are. These are signs that say you're living between the times. They're not signs that the end is just around the corner. It's around the corner in the sense that it's one day closer, but it's nothing to say, well, it's, it's more immediate because these things are happening. These signs will will happen until Christ comes again. And the reason, I think this is important, just here at the outset, and we'll get through them, we'll get through the signs, but the reason that we know these signs will mark the entire period between the first and second coming is found by looking ahead to verse 14, the last verse. Because at the end of these signs, he lists the final sign, which we'll we'll come to at the end, but, but he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Right? And so it's difficult for me to read that. So some people say, well, that is just talking about the destruction of the temple. That doesn't sound like he's describing the time preceding the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And so that sounds like the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's gospel saying, go into all nations. And so this is kind of a precursor to the Gentile mission that this gospel is going to be proclaimed, and then the end will come. And so I think that's why these signs are going to mark... The entire age until Jesus comes back. And so these signs are not signs that the end is near. And I say this, and maybe I don't have to clarify, but I say this because I don't know how many times people have come to me asking about these things, assuming that when they hear something on the news or something in history, and they assume that this is evidence that the return of Christ is imminent or more imminent than we ought to think. And I remember very clearly in high school, I was in high school in 2001, and September 11th happened. I remember there was a teacher who, he he was not religious, but he loved end time stuff. And and I remember in class, he said, Nathan, don't you think the end is right around the corner? I what do you mean? Well, look at what's happening. Look at the World Trade Center was destroyed. Don't you think that that Jesus is about to come back? And here I am a high schooler. I'm like, I I don't know. He's coming back, I think, Yeah. But, but he thought, and it's not just high school teachers, it's, it's preachers on TV, it's mature Christians who assume what they read about in verses 4 through 14, that when they hear about these things in the world, it's like, "Oh, sound the alarm. It's coming back. It's soon, it's coming because these things are happening. And, and Jesus says the exact opposite. It's not the end. Don't be alarmed. These things have to happen. Don't worry. And so let's look at these birth pains. Let's work through them. Verses 4 through 14, the beginning of the birth pains. And so we're going to see six signs here. We're just going to work through these quickly. I'm I'm going to go quickly. Don't worry. First sign, verses 4 through 5, one of the birth pains will be the presence of false teachers. Verse 4, Jesus answered them. They've asked about when the thing's going to be. And he goes into this. See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And so Jesus here, this first warning, this sign, is that there will be false teachers, and many, he says, are going to come in my name, claiming to be the Christ themselves. Now, we're not very familiar with that. I mean, maybe there are a few that we may be aware of, but in the first century, there were many after Jesus died and, and there, was, there was no marvelous overthrow of the world governments and of the Romans, there were people who would rise up and say, I am the Messiah. I'm the promised one coming to, to revolt against the leaders. And they were claiming to be the Christ and they, they gained a the following. And Jesus says, don't, don't be led astray. I mean, in fact, in the book of Acts, two of them in Acts 5, Thutis and Judas the Galilean are mentioned as raising revolts, and later in Acts chapter 21, a, a man who's simply referred to as the Egyptian is mentioned. And so there's these, these characters on the scene that, that come up and do exactly what Jesus said they were going to do. And in all these examples, these men gained followings, or, or more accurately, they, they led people astray by claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be sent by God. And so Jesus, knowing this would be the case, says, see that no one leads you astray. Be aware of those who would deceive. These are, Jesus would say, are antichrists. They're not me. In fact, they're against me. And they're going to lead many astray. And it makes sense, doesn't it? If there's going to be this delay, an extended period of time between the first and second coming, the, the first coming and the culmination of the salvation accomplished by Christ, if there's a delay, it makes sense that in the midst of, of opposition or suffering or persecution, that, that people would rise up and deceive others and say, hey, you, don't, you want to stop suffering? Take up the sword and let, let's revolt together. It makes sense. Either by promising deliverance through rebellion or war, or in our day, we don't have many people saying, let's revolt in the name of God. But, but what's more common to our experience, you have people leading others astray by making promises on behalf of God that God never made himself. Right? You don't want to suffer, here's what you got to do. You don't want to be oppressed, here's what you got to believe. Right? Our world, just like the world of these first disciples, is a world with, with many antichrists making promises, claiming to be from God, when in reality, they're just sent to deceive and lead many astray. And so Jesus warns, see that no one leads you astray. But it's not just false prophets. Look at the second sign, the second birth pain. It's it's not just one-time international rivalry, but it's this continuous international rivalry. Look at verse 6 and 7. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must, this is a divine must, this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Again, Jesus says you're going to hear of these wars. may not involve you, but you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. Well, don't be alarmed. Why, Jesus says, is because this must take place. It must happen. But the end is not yet. These, all of these, Jesus says, are but the beginning of birth pains, leading towards the end, but not the end. They're just the beginning of the birth pains. In a fallen, sick, sin world, world, a world that awaits the return of Christ, it's a world that will necessarily be marked by calamity, by wars and rumors of wars, things that would attempt, or things that would tempt the followers of Christ to be alarmed, right? If we live in the world and we hear about all this upheaval and war, we're tempted to think what? God's not in control. They're going to get us. The Christian church is going to be put out in this country. So when we hear about upheaval and turmoil, we think, is the world out of control? That's chaos. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Jesus says, don't be alarmed. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus would say. Don't be alarmed. These things must take place. Nation is going to rise against nation, but it's not just nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There's going to be international rivalry, and it's going to be continuous. And these are things that have marked the world since Jesus left but things that represent not the end, but just the beginning of the birth pains. Don't be alarmed. Don't be deceived by some TV preacher, Bible teacher, who can locate the rise of Russia in the timeline of world history or the place of this new world government on an end times chart. That's not the point. Don't get bent out of shape. These things must take place. The Lord is Lord, regardless of what the nations do. Do you believe that? Third sign, or third birth pain, is natural disasters. Look again for, from verse 7. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. In the same way, followers of Christ must not be thrown into panic with news of famine and earthquakes. All these, Jesus says, are but the beginning of birth pains. So that the counting of earthquakes or tsunamis or other natural disasters by, by prophecy teachers, it's erroneous. For Jesus says... They don't signify the end. It's just a sign that the birth pains are beginning. Fourth sign, Jesus mentioned, verse 9, is severe opposition. Look there, verse 9, then, and again, I don't think this is a then as in the next thing that's going to happen, but simply a then as in at that time, then, during those days, at that time, first and second coming, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The focus shifts from the world outside in apparent chaos to now a world that is set against the followers of Christ. And Jesus says, during that time, the world is gonna deliver you up to tribulation. It's gonna kill you. And during that time, you're gonna be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Notice again, the nations are gonna be the recipients of the gospel, but they're also gonna be the source of persecution and death. Jesus is preparing his followers for what is coming, for, they can ex- for what they can expect during this delay between his first and second coming. Things are not going to be unique. These things are not going to be unique during the end. These are going to mark the experience of the followers of Christ in the world. And In fact, I, I came across a statistic that said the 19th century had more Christian martyrs than all previous centuries combined. Just because we're not being killed in our country doesn't mean that the church isn't being persecuted and killed, right? This has been what this, the Christian church has experienced since Jesus left. Hated and delivered up to tribulation and put to death. And this is just a sign that marks the time between the first and second coming. Fifth sign that Jesus mentioned in verse 10, which is certainly connected to all that had come before, is apostasy or a falling away, verse 10. And then, again, during that time, same time he's talking about, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets, again, the false prophets are mentioned again, will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. Here's the fifth sign. It's the fact that many people will appear to be followers of Christ, but because of the difficulty or because of the opposition, because of the false teachers, regardless, because of these various causes, these people will fall away. They will abandon Christ. They will give up on his second coming. They'll look around and they'll say, this is not what I signed up for. They'll say, I'm throwing in the towel. This Jesus thing is harder than I want. I'd rather keep my life than follow him. Right? I can't do this anymore. Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. And it makes sense because of what he's just said is going to happen. You're going to be handed over. You're going to be persecuted. Of course people are going to fall away. And in so doing, these people, they're not going to prove that Christ's people can be lost. This isn't evidence that you can lose your salvation. This is simply evidence that these people were simply rocky ground from the get-go. Remember the parable of the soils that Jesus told earlier in the gospel? He says, hey, some of them are going to hear the word, and they're going to receive it with joy, yet there's no root in himself. He endured for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arose on account of the word... Immediately they fell away. It means the seed never took root. And church history is filled with people when, when the going gets tough, they, they jump ship. And that's not to say that, 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 that they had a legitimate conversion that then was lost, that they were somehow deconverted or they were once born again, but then they were put back into, in the tomb, as it were. That can't happen. If you have a healthy understanding of conversion, you'll understand that no one can lose your salvation because it's not just a decision you make. This is a work of God in saving sinners, and you're born again, and you can't lose that. But there'll be many who appear to be Christians but who fall away, who simply evidence they were never of us, as the Apostle John would say. And so here Jesus says that this apostasy, this falling away, this love growing cold, is going to be a mark of the time, between his first and second coming. It's going to be a regular experience. Jesus teaches there will be no shortage of almost Christians, those who appear to follow Christ, only to reveal when the going gets tough that they had no root in them and they were never truly followers of Christ. I think there's a warning in there for us. But finally, verse 13, look at the truth. Look at how Jesus closes out this with the truth that all of God's people will persevere, verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. I mean, think about this. Jesus is warning and preparing his disciples for what's to come. And the authority of Jesus, the the confidence with which Jesus proclaims this truth, rests on the fact that despite false teachers, despite continual international rivalry, despite natural disasters, despite severe opposition, despite continual apostasy, despite all these things, Jesus knows that his kingdom will remain and that his people will endure. I mean, how else can he prepare his disciples unless he knows my people and my kingdom, are not in jeopardy. In fact, I'm on the road to Jerusalem and I'm gonna be crucified so that I can secure my kingdom and my people. His his people, his kingdom, they're not in jeopardy of being lost. The truth is what grounds, this truth is what grounds his followers in the midst of upheaval and turmoil and chaos and persecution and suffering. And so as we live between the times, the reality is he's coming back. History is moving forward to its God-appointed end. And so we don't have to lose our minds because, I mean, look at verse 14. Verse 14 and this is the sixth sign, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come, right? This is the sixth sign. Until Christ comes again, this message of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony or witness to all nations, and so just as this time between the first and second coming is characterized by opposition and persecution and recurrent bounds of apostasy, it's also characterized by worldwide preaching of the gospel. And when the Lord determines that the preaching of the gospel has run its course, then do you know what? Then the end will come. That's a sign. When, when the gospel is proclaimed, well, then the end comes. And it's right for us to close the sermon this way with a reminder that the gospel is the message that we proclaim. It's the message of salvation. We don't preach a message of the end times and, and what, to be look, what to look for. We preach the gospel. And we say, this is the message of salvation. This is how you have peace with a holy God. This is how you survive the end times. You don't put together a list of things to buy. You, you look to Jesus. That's how you survive. And the gospel has powerfully saved many and will continue to save those who hear the message who, when it comes upon them in power, who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that message will save until Christ comes again. That's the sixth sign. That's going to be happening until he comes back. And so until he comes back, brother, sister, we have a gospel to believe and a gospel to proclaim. Let's hold that thought. We'll come back next week. Let's pray, and then we'll sing in response.